My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French. And this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Allie experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s, and Erica went through a self-love journey, we created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. This episode is brought to you by Ned. Let's talk about CBD. The CBD market feels really saturated these days, doesn't it? It seems like you can get it at any coffee shop or grocery store, and many CBD brands actually source their hemp from industrial hemp farms in China. The brand that we love, and more importantly, the brand that we trust is Ned. Ned produces some of the highest quality CBD available in the world, and Erica and I only partner with brands that we ourselves use. Ned shares third-party lab reports, who farms their products, and their extraction process all right there on their website. Ned is also USDA certified organic with all products extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Peonia, Colorado. How is that for knowing exactly where your CBD comes from? We have both been longtime users of Ned. I rely on the full spectrum hemp oil to help with anxiety and the hormone balance blend has been a game changer as I transitioned off of birth control. And today we want to talk about Ned's new product, which has been in development for over a year, the de-stress blend. I've gone through two bottles since it's come out and I could not be more obsessed with the benefits and the effects. This one-to-one formula of CBD and CBG is made from the world's purest full spectrum hemp and check out these ingredients. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. Ashwagandha is an amazing Ayurvedic adaptogen that enhances your body's resilience to stress. And the delicious taste of this blend is thanks to the botanical infusion of cardamom and cinnamon. Cinnamon is a powerful prebiotic that supports your gut health, a key player in your mental health. And cardamom combats stress by helping reduce your blood pressure and cortisol levels. Also, Ned's quality speaks for itself. The products have over 1,500 five-star reviews, and they work with incredible partners within the medical field like Dr. Carolyn Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and Dr. Will Cole, who has been a two-time guest on this podcast. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Courageous Wellness listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code CWPODCAST. Visit helloned.com slash CWPODCAST to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com forward slash CWPODCAST to get 15% off. 
Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. You can also find a link in our show notes. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Courageous Wellness. Uh, we have a great episode, really interesting today with Jenny Quilter. Um, and we're going to be talking about reproductive technology, among other things. But um, before we get into that, we're going to just do our usual weekly update with what's going on in our lives or what we are enjoying um, at, you know, in the moment. So uh, Erica, do you want to kick us off with what your, your update is? Yeah, I can start. I it's so interesting. This is a great episode episode <laughs> about, um, you know, Jenny's fertility journey and IVF and infertility. And, you know, it's interesting because my update has to do with my hormones. And I think I shared, we, we did a solo episode on my experience going off of birth control, which will be two years ago in May, which mm. is so crazy. Time is going by so fast. And, um, my periods have been really regular, since. However, there was a time of stress in my life where they kind of went off. And also my PMS was just not great. Like I had some like mental health dips right around my period and, um, or my menstruation phase. And I just, it wasn't, I, it was never like an enjoyable, like luteal phase. I would say like right before mm -hmm. my period wouldn't be super great. And anyway, our, our amazing girl, Allie over here, <laughs> she had been really encouraging me to focus on cycle syncing for lack of a better word, like really focusing on what phase of my cycle I was in eating for that phase of my cycle, moving for that phase of my cycle. And I guess that's my update is I yeah. finally listened. Um, <laughs> I, I think I shared in my, in, in a January update that I've really cut added sugar from my plate for the most part, um, in, in such a significant way, especially from the holidays. And I've been really conscientious of, am I in my follicular, my ovulatory, my luteal or my menstrual. And last month I had no PMS for the yeah. first time. Yay! And, um, I know my cycle is due, any day now. And I'm so far having no PMS again. And it's kind of incredible. Um, I feel <laughs> really fortunate. Uh, but you know, Allie is also a hormone coach. So if anyone wants to work <laughs> with her on hormones, um, you know, you could email or slide into our DMs. But it's it's such a big update for me because especially in November, December, like like the depression I would get mm. around my cycle was so bad that, you know, I just, it was unmanageable. And so to be in a place after just what, two months, you know, or a month, you know, it's like our two cycles. Yeah. I think that's what I, I think that's what helped me fall in love with nutrition and wellness is that it, you know, if we are dealing with more like acute, symptoms, right? Yeah. Like I didn't go on birth control because I had any big issues. Birth control for me was just to prevent pregnancy. You know, so if we have more acute issues, we really can see major changes, you know, fairly quickly, right? Two period cycles, one period cycle is not that much, you know? Yeah. So that made me really fall in love with wellness. And it's been such a good reminder. And it's been like the greatest 
impetus to keep going in terms of like, like I said, like I've had such like, I don't cut food groups from my diet because I don't have any like serious allergies, but you know, um, low dairy and very low added sugar, if any, it's changed, it's changed my, my hormones. And then, yeah, like knowing what phase I'm in and then eating and moving accordingly, it's just game changing. It's just game changing. That's awesome. And, you know, actually you talking about this, it kind of makes me think that maybe we should do another solo episode soon um, and and talk about it because it really is very empowering. And I've had friends and folks um, make adjustments and really start to understand the phases of their um, of their cycle. Uh, it's called the infradian rhythm or cycle that we, you know, experience. And, um, once you start to understand that and can, and can really kind of lean into the different ways to support each phase of it, as you were saying, it can be so impactful and, you know, you don't have to live with extreme, um, symptoms as far as PMS goes or all these things are, are, reflective of something going on hormonally, some sort of, even if it's very mild or minor imbalance. So um, there are ways to help support that. And uh, maybe we'll do, you know, another episode. I know we talked about also having our our friend, Jess uh, Sukan come back, who's also an excellent hormone health coach. So yeah, I think that could be beneficial for our listeners. And just a tip for anybody who's listening and they're like, okay, like, what does this mean? I don't want to wait for your solo episode, just like a quick bite-sized takeaway that really helped me even just look at the four phases is follicular is your inner spring, ovulatory is your inner summer, luteal is your inner fall, and menstruation is your inner winter. Mm. So even if you don't know anything else, right, it's like, how would you eat and move during those seasons? That it's just, it was helpful for me because I was like, oh, it's right now, you know, the end of my luteal I'm in my inner fall moving into winter. You know, I want more things like avocado toast or, you know, protein, healthy fat and fiber yogurt bowls or oat bowls or different things like that. So it's, um, it's helped me a lot and I'm eating. Oh, Allie, you'll love this so much more protein, protein in every (laughs) meal. So I'm sure that's, I was just going to say, I'm sure that's helped my hormones tremendously. Yeah. Protein every single meal. Um, yeah. Anyway, some good takeaways. What about you, Allie? So, um, your life. Yes. Uh, what is going on with me? I have an anniversary coming up, which will yes, be you do. really fun. And part of what I'm so excited about is that um, to celebrate it, my husband and I are going to see one of our favorite comics, um, which I'm really excited about. His name is Mateo Lane. And he's just such a funny, talented guy. Um and if you guys don't know of him, I don't know, like his content just brings me so much joy. And he, in addition to being like a stand-up comic, he's like an incredible opera singer. He speaks four languages fluently. He does Italian cooking videos. He's from Chicago, um, but he does these like amazing, he comes from a big Italian family and he, he does these amazing um, recipe videos too. So he's really like a creative uh, person with so much set, sort of like um, talent in many different areas, but he channels it all through his comedy. So, um, we once did an episode about laughter and wellness or comedy and like where the, the 
basically the benefits of laughing and having a sense of humor in our in our health journey. And so sometimes we don't think about that, but um, I, I just love going and laughing. And I mean, I'm smiling talking about it. Like <laughs> this guy is just so funny and I really just, I really enjoy his content. So that'll um, be, that'll yeah. be so fun and happy, happy first year of marriage. One Thank year anniversary. Yeah, Very yeah. exciting. Um, yeah. This weekend is actually a time of recording 11 years since my first date with my husband. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Time flies. flies. I can't believe it's been a year. It feels like a lifetime since I feel like, right? Like everything. I mean, it's just amazing. Congratulations. So exciting. But we do have a great episode ahead of us. And before we we get to it, we just wanted to remind everyone that this episode is sponsored by Milk and Honey. And Milk and Honey is a female founded and funded brand. They are based out of Austin, Texas, and they have spas throughout Texas, Miami, Chicago, and two locations in Los Angeles. And they also have a line of hyper clean products. The milk and honey line is wonderful. And they also carry brands from Supergoop, Osea Malibu, Moon Juice, all available online. So if you want to save 20% at their spas or their online boutique, you can save 20% with code CWPODCAST at checkout. And so you can check out all the links and information in our show notes, but it's really wonderful. And we can't wait to hear what you think of the products. Let us know um, if you buy anything and if you try it. Some of our favorites are milk and honey. My aluminum-free baking soda-free deodorant is my ride or die product. And I get all of my Osea Malibu products and super goop sunscreen from their website. So check it out. (laughs) So with that, uh, we have a great episode for you today. So shall we get into it? Let's do it. So today on the podcast, we welcome Jenny Quilter. Jenny teaches at New York University and is the author of New York School Painters and Poets, Neon and Daylight, for which she was a finalist for the 2014 AICA Award for Best Criticism. She has written for the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Times Literary Literary Supplement, London, Poetry Review, and the London Review of Books. Her new book, Hatching, was recently released and is a provocative examination of reproductive technologies that questions our understanding of fertility, motherhood, and the female body. In this conversation, we discuss Jenny's fertility journey, infertility, IVF, and have a detailed conversation about what it means to desire a child and how much freedom reproductive technologies actually offer. Her writing embraces the complexities of motherhood and the humanity of IVF. And we really enjoyed this conversation with her. So let us know what you think on Instagram by tagging us at Courageous Wellness. Before we get to today's episode, we want to tell you a little bit about the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Erica and I are both certified integrative health coaches. I have advanced training in hormone health, and she has advanced training in gut health. And we offer health coaching and corporate coaching through the Courageous Wellness Collective. We continued our education and received certification through the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. IIN has taken the lead in the health coaching industry from its inception and provides a comprehensive curriculum that combines nutrition, coaching, and business. 
We loved the program and have had many listeners ask us about continuing their education in nutrition, health coaching, or even just advancing their personal knowledge about food and nutrition. So we are very excited to be able to offer a discount to Courageous Wellness listeners to study at IIN. The program is completely accessible virtually with lectures led by health, wellness, and medical industry experts. To receive up to $2,500 off your tuition, you can use our names, Allie French or Erica Stein, at the time of enrollment to receive the tuition discount. We have also included a link in the show notes that will take you directly to IIN to learn more about their wonderful programs. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We are both very excited to have this conversation with you. Um, But before we get into everything, can you share with us and our listeners a little bit about your personal background and your journey into the wellness world and the world and the work that you do now? Okay. Thank you so much, Erica and Ali, for having me. Um, So, I um, I put off the question of whether to have children for quite some time. I um, I loved the work that I was doing. I was in grad school and then I was teaching in university and I was writing. And um, I had always felt ambivalent about having kids. I just didn't have um, kind of the strong desire to do it. And um, I hadn't spent a lot of time with kids growing up. I didn't babysit really young kids. It just wasn't part of, if you'd asked me to imagine what I really wanted in my life, family was there, but it was, it was more of a background desire. Um, and so, um, I went through my twenties and early thirties, just thinking that I could always put it off just a little bit later. And also, um, I was in a series of relationships that were great relationships, but Um, I was never with someone who really wanted to have a kid of their own either, um, which made it easier to delay. And because I was living in New York City, um, that city is really good at helping you delay that question as well, because everyone who has a kid in New York City um, usually has to face sort of the real estate consequences of needing more space. And so many of my friends who had kids ended up moving out of the city. So there was this sort of... um, I didn't have to confront it basically. None of my friends had kids um, or very few of them. And so when I got to 35, I decided to freeze my eggs um, because I thought, well, I don't know what's gonna happen, but maybe it'll be good to freeze my eggs because I know my fertility will drop off, right? That's the age at which they talk about declining fertility. So I made an appointment at an IVF clinic and went in and they do what's called a transvaginal ultrasound where they look at how many follicles you have um, and they count them up <laughs> they look at the lining of your womb and they just look to see if there are any sort of pressing issues that would make it harder to conceive and they also do some blood work they they look for two different levels of hormones they look for if fsh levels and amh levels and they're looking to see whether your body has a large store of eggs and also um, how sensitive it might be to the hormones that you need to take if you're going to do in vitro fertilization. And uh, it all looked okay. And then the day I was supposed to begin, 
I got my blood work done that day and they called me halfway through the day the nurse did and said that my FSH level was 14.3, which was way higher than it should have been. And she said, um, you can't do IVF. It's not going to work. Um, the level's too high. And so what that means is that the, the FSH level means that even if I would inject myself with those hormones, my body wasn't going to respond well. It wasn't going to produce more follicles that could then be um, extracted. Um, and it was a, like a, a real moment of reckoning for me because I had always been extremely fit. I had been, you know, I thought I knew my body, put it that way. I had done yoga for many, many years. Um, I was used to being in spaces where I thought I was listening to my body and listening to what it wanted. And it was incredibly destabilizing to realize that I had not known um, that this was happening and that I basically had the number of eggs that say a 44 year old woman would have as opposed to a 35 year old woman. Um, and it was when that possibility was removed from me that I suddenly realized how much I was grieving the fact that I might not be able to have a child of my own. And up until that point, my ambivalence had been fairly clearly fleshed out, but all of a sudden I no longer had the luxury of being ambivalent. And I was um, bereft and felt like I couldn't really talk about it to other people um, because it was just so new. Like it's, it takes a while to integrate that information into your own sense of self. And I didn't even know how to tackle it myself, let alone talk to other people. And the people I did talk to um, <laughs> also had real reactions. So my mum, bless her, uh, had never pressured me to have children, but when I told her what was going on, she was incredibly upset too, because for her, it was the, the removal of a possibility of being a grandparent. And I suddenly understood all the ways in which people had been kind of waiting for me to have children and not saying and expecting this arc in my life. And all of a sudden that arc wasn't a given anymore. Uh, so, what to do, right? And anyone who's had this experience or anyone who's trying to conceive with their partner and it's not working and someone quietly suggests going to an IVF fertility specialist and all of a sudden they've embarked on this course of action um, will know how destabilizing this is. And one of the things that can happen is that you fall into the internet. You spend hours and hours trawling through um, various medical sites, trying to work out what these numbers mean, trying to work out what your chances are. And there are hundreds of um, fertility message boards where women will go online and post their fertility journeys, right? And you can go online and say, look, I have an FSH level of 14.3, what do you think? And um, it was interesting because on the one hand, it felt incredibly liberating to see all these women posting to one another without having to deal with a medical establishment. Like they were going to their doctors, but they were also communicating with one another in this way. And that felt incredibly liberating and comforting. But on the other hand, I found it personally very hard to post. 
Um, and I think it was because so many of the women that I saw online posting had badly wanted to be mothers from a very young age. And um, th they just had this as a kind of expected thing in their life. And I was just so much more ambivalent about it that I didn't even know how to talk about my own desire to have a kid. Um, especially when, you know, I, I was grieving this thing that I didn't even know that I was going to grieve. And so um, I, I read all these messages and I read the medical literature and because I'm a writer and because I'm a teacher, I just kept on reading and reading and reading <laughs> as a compensating mechanism. And um, I started to realize that there was a body of work by feminist anthropologists from about the 80s onwards that discussed IVF and their point of view was quite different. They were looking at the ways in which the IVF industry has um, normalized ways of women looking at their own bodies. And um, they were interested in challenging some of the assumptions that the IVF industry has about how we view fertility and what kind of agency we can have as patients in that system. Because, and here's an example, you go to an IVF clinic and the any grief that you're experiencing or any frustration or any doubt um, is it's very hard to express those emotions inside the clinic and it's not because the people in there aren't caring the doctors and nurses are incredibly caring but the whole way it's set up it manages any pain and suffering very very swiftly so you sit in the waiting room your name is called you go in you give blood it's very quick you go back out in the waiting room you wait for your name to be called you go in they look at your fallopian you know, follicles and your uterus you go out you go home you inject the drugs you come back in the next day and because there's this kind of regimented system of going in being checked leaving it, it's just very hard to stop and say but wait a second, I'm having this thought or I'm having this doubt. And there's no time really to kind of check in with yourself and see how you feel about any of this, right? So as a, as a woman, I think you are suddenly, you suddenly feel like a lot of your agency is being put to one side because you're trying to be a good patient. You're trying to do everything they want you to do. And it's very hard to work out how to regain your sense of agency or power in that moment when from the get-go it's being framed as a failure to reproduce. Um, so I read all this feminist literature, <laughs> um, which was so wonderful to read because it didn't assume that the IVF industry was like a, naturally a good thing. It had deep skepticism about it. And so as a patient, it just gave me a little bit more, a larger way to have a bit more resistance to what I was experiencing. And so I went um, to, for example, um, Chinese medicine um, to try and deal with my FSH level. And they told me, look, we're gonna have to wait a couple of months and um, we'll retest your FSH level in a couple of months and see what happens. And, um, and let's just wait. And there are many websites that say that FSH can fluctuate. 
and they're not quite sure why it does. And even if it does fluctuate, a bad FSH reading is still fairly indicative of a failure to do it. But they said, well, let's just give it a couple of months. So I went and did acupuncture. I drank herbal tea. I stopped doing hot yoga because I was told that I needed to stop by the, the, the doctor that I was receiving the acupuncture from. She said I had too much. I can't remember which one it is, yang or yang energy, but I had too much. Um, and uh, I went in again and I chose a different doctor the second time around because I could tell that the first doctor, he just had kind of given up on me immediately when he saw the FSH level. I chose a second do doctor who specialized in women who have a harder time conceiving. And um, in that month, um, it became clear as well that I would never have enough eggs to freeze them because if you want to go down the, the, the track of freezing eggs, the best, the best option is to harvest as many as possible and freeze as many as possible so that you have a lot to work with when then you then fertilize them later on when you unfreeze them and fertilize them and implant them. And it just, it, it just was clear. I was never going to get those numbers. So um, in, that, in, in that month, I agreed to co-parent um, with a, a, an old um, boyfriend of mine who um, we had been broken up for three years. Uh, I knew him very well. We had gone out for seven years. He badly wanted to be a dad. Um, and uh, we decided to co-parent if I could get my FSH level down. Um, and it sounds like a completely crazy idea. Um, who would want to co-parent with an ex-boyfriend? <laughs> uh, but it felt weirdly like the most stable decision I could make at the time um, because the other option was going to a sperm bank. And uh, I suppose that that just opened up so many unknowns at that moment and i already felt so exhausted by the other unknowns that i had and he was this guy who i knew very very well i knew him at his worst i knew him at his best he felt like a known quantity um and i knew that i respected him and that that respect never went away in our relationship uh and that i knew he would give um if we had a kid together he would give that kid um, things that I couldn't give it and vice versa. I knew that we were complementary in terms of the qualities that we had. So he agreed to do it with me. And so when we went to the second doctor, um, I went in and I had my blood tested and my FSH had dropped from 14.3 to about eight. No one knows why. Um, he, the doctor couldn't explain it. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty good um, advertisement for uh, acupuncture and, and herbal medicine, I think. Uh, so I could, I could begin. And so I began, I started injecting myself. Um, I started going to the clinic. Um, my body responded. I had um, the retrieval, the egg retrieval procedure. They extracted a number of eggs. They were able to fertilize them with this, this person's sperm. Um, they implanted one blastocyst in me and uh, then you have to wait for two weeks right you have a two-week wait before you know if you're pregnant and in those two weeks i started writing the essay that turned into hatching this book because it felt to me um like an incredible moment because you're they put a 
living blastocyst in you, but you have no idea for two weeks whether it is alive or whether it's died. And there's this kind of you're pregnant, not pregnant. Your body feels like it's pregnant because it's got all these hormones in it, but you have no idea. And that not not knowing is like a torment. People talk about how bad, you know, how difficult it is to get through those two weeks. But to me, it felt like this very cool um, experiment in the multiverse that there were these two tracks of time and two different futures. And I had no idea which which future I was living in. And so I started thinking a lot about science fiction and about how we visualize time in our lives. And I wrote this essay. And at the end of the two weeks, um, it turned out that I was pregnant, but not really pregnant. So there had been some kind of implantation. My body had um, my body was starting to produce what's not what's known as HCG, which is like a sign that there's changes in your body and that the egg is implanted and that something is growing but the level of hcg was quite low it wasn't climbing as rapidly as it needs to climb when you first fall pregnant and then they did more blood tests more time and hcg still wasn't going up properly and it became clear that it probably the um, embryo was chromosomally abnormal and that i was going to miscarry um, and then I waited and waited to miscarry a couple of weeks and my body wouldn't miscarry, um, which was extremely distressing. Um, and so I had to go and have a, what's known as a DNC, um, which is like an abortion where they scrape your womb basically and remove the embryo. Uh, so, um, you, know, you know, anyone who's gone through this, this will sound very familiar. Um, and it becomes a series of medical procedures, right, where you're trying to manage your fertility. And so then I went on another round, right? Of course, sunk costs. So you try to keep on going. I went on a different round. Second time around, I got three embryos. They implanted two of them. Well, no, they implanted all three of them, actually. And um, this time around, I got a positive pregnancy test and HCG started climbing. And it was climbing and climbing and climbing. But what was interesting to me was by that point, I was so terrified of the process, really. I was I was so skeptical in a way uh, and, and fearful that it wasn't going to work and that this was just going to be the situation that I went through most of my pregnancy um, uh, worried <laughs> and kind of not really uh, getting excited about it in the way that I think um, a lot of people expect to be excited by a pregnancy. So I didn't buy baby clothes. I didn't think I didn't think about baby names too much. I didn't prepare my house in the way that many women do. Um, all of those kind of um, nesting instincts that happen were radically delayed um, in my case. Um, and all this while I was reading these sort of histories of women's bodies and how women have been taught to visualize their bodies and how women have been taught to visualize their fertility and thinking about the ways in which I had been taught to understand my fertility and how I was visualizing what was happening to me right now, how I was building that knowledge. And so the book that I wrote, Hatching, is really a kind of discussion of what does it mean to be um, taught how to visualize a fertility? What happens when something changes in that process? How do we then um, shift our internal ways of understanding our bodies? And what kind of agency can we build 
when it feels like we're in a situation where we often can't actually exercise agency in ways that we have before. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, that kind of overview of, of your experience and how that led to hatching. I feel like there's so much that I know we and our audience probably can, um, relate to whether it's through the process, the fertility process, Eric and I, I know can speak. We both personally have not gone through that yet, (laughs) but who's to say we (laughs) might not. Um, but just like so much of what you were talking about, I'm going to be 37 in April and that kind of experience of all of a sudden it becoming a very, very, um, relevant life sort of decision or, or, you know, do I want to go down that journey or that road? Um, it becomes this sense of, I mean, time around that too. And I've had conversations with friends recently, something you spoke about this sort of ambivalence, but not, not realizing until it's sort of time where you have to confront fertility in a very real biological way, um, that you realize there might be some um, desire there, or maybe there's not. And that's something that's also a strange thing to explore that I have friends exploring as well. Um, and so I just wanted to start by saying thank you for sharing that. And also writing this book, I think there's something unique. Um, I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but even the way, um, I love how you start and it sounds like it, it developed from an essay, but with the, um, it's the, memoirs of a space woman mm-hmm. and talking about that. And I thought that was just so interesting in the way, like sort of approaching your own personal journey, but like with this examination and then going into the like historical and cultural examination of, of the female body um, over the last so many hundreds of years in in the context of medicine and fertility as well and agency, as you talked about. So anyway, there's so much to go into. (laughs) I'm like, where should we start? Um, But just like, thank you. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I I just want to pick up what you said on that time. So, um, and maybe this is something for people who are like a alpha type or like a sort of a types where who are very focused, right? So um time moved at a completely different pace for me before i went through this um time was very manageable it was divided up into chunks right before breakfast go to work exercise um work in the evening and it it felt very predictable right i i i felt confident about how fast a life could move i felt my own pacing very clearly and i think you know, I, I, I've done teacher training in yoga and in Ashtanga. And one of the things is all about breath, right? And you're pacing yourself very, very deliberately when you're moving and you get to know your body that way through this kind of careful inhalation, exhalation. So it was so challenging to give up that segmentation of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you understand time profoundly differently when some really fundamental expectations are shaken. And then the time of pregnancy really changes your understanding of time and the time of being a mother really changes your understanding of time too. So I had no idea 
that that was going to be one of the biggest takeaways to this process. Um, well, yeah. Thank you for adding that in. Yeah. Um, I think, I think what's kind of, what really resonates with me about you writing this book is that as a, as a cisgender woman uh, in this kind of age frame, I can, um, I've been having conversations with other friends also in this space. And I have a lot of friends who are not, I have some friends who are moms, um, but I have a lot of friends who are now we're kind of pushing into these late thirties years who are not. And, um, are, are exploring all the complexity that goes along with this conversation, even beyond the physical complexity of it. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of say, th like, thank you for your vulnerability and opening up about your own journey, because I think talking about it is, um, is helpful. I had a conversation realize, recently with a friend who was like, I don't know. I don't, I just don't feel this. I don't know what I want to do, but maybe, maybe it's okay to not also, maybe it's okay to not feel this way. Um, and exploring that. And I know Erica and I at open conversation when we were preparing to chat with you today at open conversation, even with us and in this space of, we know a lot of people who are going through the process or considering freezing their eggs. So um, I guess I would love to just ask when you were confronted with this, like, do I want to pursue um, parenthood, motherhood and pregnant and pregnancy too? It's because it's, you know, mm -hmm. we can become, we can become parents without, without pregnancy, but this is also like a, a very, um, I feel like a physiological component to this story and your story as well. When you wanted to explore pregnancy in your future and started this, um, started this process and you were still grappling with ambivalence, um, it's a, it's a big process to go into, uh, financially and hormonally and physically, you know, physically. And you talk a little bit about that. How did you know, especially with fertility, like the IVF journey and the egg freezing journey, how did, how, how were you like confident enough after having this ambivalence initially that you wanted to, to, to put yourself through this process? That's a really good question. Um, I think that I was so grief stricken and so amazed by how grief stricken I was that it kind of that impelled me. Um, it, it wasn't so much confidence as just this feeling of, wow, I really don't understand my feelings right now. And that's a sign to me that I should do something drastic. <laughs> like I'm having a big reaction right now. And that, that impelled me. I think also I grew up um, in New Zealand and my mother was a family doctor and my um, dad uh, taught at the medical school at Auckland University. And so um, I grew up being very comfortable with the idea of science and bodies. Um, I, um, I have early memories of going into the dissection lab that was next to my dad's office at the university and looking at brains on trays that had just been lifted, right, from cadavers earlier that day. Um, so I, I don't think I had the kind of knee-jerk um, 
fear of science that some people have. Uh, and I also felt like because I had spent, I, I because I ran and did yoga and swam, I felt tough, physically tough. Um, and that helped me. Um, I did a lot of walking when I, when I underwent this process and the walking really helped me because I think walking is like the key to everything pretty much. Um, so I think the confidence also came from feeling like I knew my body could probably take what it, what they were going to throw at it. Um, not to say that it wasn't difficult or challenging, but, but that was kind of ready. My body was ready to do it. Um, I think it was those things that made me feel more comfortable. And also, I should say, the father of my child, um, who who agreed to co-parent, he also has a really individual relationship to medicine. He has a genetic condition. Um, he's been in and out of hospitals most of his life in some way. Um, so he wasn't at all freaked out by the science. Um, or about the idea that this was going to happen on a petri dish, right? Or with a micro pipette. Um, the idea that we would conceive out, outside of our bodies and then have it placed back inside mine, um, I don't think was a stretch for him, just in terms of general imagination. Um, I think those things probably helped. Yeah, no, this is such, I'm soaking all of this in as well too, because I, it's interesting because I'm, I recently turned 34. So I'm at that age of, and I'm, I'm married, I'm partnered. And, um, but I'm also not necessarily, I don't, I don't know. We don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a big decision. It's a big choice. And a year from now I'll be 35. And that's like you said in the beginning, the big age that everyone talks about. So it's almost like this, um, it's like just waiting for me. That's how it feels. Like it's just dangling there. Like, okay. Um, and I think I could be very happy. I know I would be very happy not having children. And I also can't imagine not having a child. So it's like this mm-hmm. kind of in-between phase that I think a lot of people are in, a lot of my friends are in. And, you know, Allie and I both grew up on different coasts. I grew up in Los Angeles and Ali grew up in the New York City area. And at least for me, so many people I know had children 37, 30, like 37 to 42, be it naturally, be it with support. Like that's just so many of my um, contemporaries, people I know that's when they had children. And so for me, I always knew and wanted to have children later. But again, it doesn't seem real until at least for me, I like 34 has been a big, like, what are we going to do? And I say all of this because, um, what you mentioned really spoke to me because I don't know if it's ambivalence, but this just like uncertainty, like, I don't know what the best choice is for me. When you said the grief that came after the testing was really clear. It's funny because, um, in October, I, when I saw my OBGYN, he was like, well, do you want to just do a blood test and we can find out, you know, some of your levels? And I was like, no, like, I don't want to know. I was like, not yet. I was like, I'm not ready to 
kind of face that reality yet. I'm going to do it next year. So (laughs) I am going to do it. I just wasn't ready when it was sprung on me. I'm a very, um, I don't know if regimented, but I I need, I I need to mentally prepare to know either way. And I'm not going to do that spontaneously. So it's something I I'm going to do, but, um, that really speaks to me where it's like, huh, if I find out I have this, you know, great blood test result, and I feel a certain way, or I find out I don't, will that mean something to me? Like, I think that's really interesting that I think that's good information that I'm like now a little less afraid or concerned to take that test. Cause I think it'll give me good information. But um, anyway, sorry, I'm just sharing because I'm sure a lot of people, like we've shared a lot of our listeners are similar age. And um, I think a lot of people are having children or want to have children later in life for a wide variety of reasons. It's very expensive to have children. As we know, I think the um, the discrepancy in the nation, in, we're in the United States, we have listeners all over the world, but in the United States, I was reading some statistics that um, like our generation at the same age has like, I think two or 4% of the nation's wealth. Whereas like every generation above us, it was like at least 10%, 20, it was so much higher. So, you know, um, there's a lot of, I think very real reasons people are delaying having children. And um, I guess my question is, I have like, I have two questions that have come to mind, but I'll start with the first. But do you have any, I guess, advice? I know this is all probably intertwined in your book, but, you know, for women in their 30s who are at this like uncertainty or unknown or, you know, so many people have told me, for instance, well, just go have the baby, like just go do it, right? Like just go try. Um, And then other people, you know, there's just so much noise around our choices. And I don't know if you have any advice for if you could go back in time and tell your 35-year-old self something, what would it be or what do you wish you would have known? We want to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about today's sponsor, Milk and Honey. Milk and Honey is a female founded and funded brand that began as a luxury day spa in Austin, Texas, and has since grown to include eight locations across Texas and Los Angeles, California, as well as a line of bath, body, and skincare products born from the spa. One of Milk and Honey's best-selling products is the natural deodorant, which is loved by Zoe Kravitz and was featured in her Vogue's Beauty Secrets video. I've been using the baking soda free version exclusively for over two, three years. This gentle aluminum free baking soda free deodorant was designed to nourish sensitive skin while keeping you feeling and smelling fresh all day long. It never gave me any itchy red bumps when I switched over and passed the smell test, even after an intense workout. It truly is the best and comes in two scents, lavender tea tree and lemon vanilla. In addition to clean deodorant, their online boutique also offers clean beauty products from top brands, including Osea Malibu, Virtue, Moonjuice, Kula Sun Care, Supergoop, and more. Some favorite products of mine other than the deodorant include Milk and Honey's Gel Cleanser, Supergoop Glow Screen and SPF 40, which I now buy on their site, and Osea's Body Oil and Vegas Nerve Oil, which activates the body's relaxation response and helps regulate stress. 
Their spas are also lovely, and we are both big fans of their spa treatments. And we now offer discounts at both the online boutique and spa locations on all spa and med spa treatments. We are also thrilled to partner with Milk and Honey to offer a courageous wellness spa package called the Courageous Wellness Retreat at a discounted rate. The Courageous Wellness Retreat combines a 60-minute milk and honey signature massage, which is a Swedish massage tailored to your needs, focusing on relaxation and stress relief combined with body brushing, an exfoliating and detoxifying treatment that uses a natural bristle brush that you get to take home to stimulate your lymph and circulation while also reviving dull skin. Courageous Wellness listeners can enjoy 20% off your next order at milkandhoney.com and 20% off your first spa service at any Milk and Honey location with code CWPODCAST. Visit milkandhoneyspa.com to find a location near you. And if you want to try the Courageous Wellness Spa package offered at a special rate, use the code Courageous Wellness Retreat to redeem. This is not able to be combined with any other discount or promotion. You can also find all the information in our show notes. We are so excited to offer our listeners a new discount to one of the best probiotic supplements on the market, Seed. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, then you know that Allie and I are both very serious when it comes to the importance of gut health and building a thriving microbiome. I personally have been using seed for close to a year now and have noticed a big difference in my digestion and bloating. I am devoted to taking seed every single morning before food, and I'm really excited to share their daily symbiotic with our audience. The formulation of the daily symbiotic combines a probiotic and prebiotic is vegan and gluten-free and includes 24 clinically studied naturally occurring strains, not found in yogurt or fermented foods and beverages and lives up to the highest standards for human and planetary health. Yes. And in addition to being a really reliable probiotic and prebiotic supplement, seed is committed to creating science-based education for all those that partner with them through accountable advertising at seed university. This is where we are all committed to not spreading misinformation about health on the internet. Pretty important, right? Also, I personally love their commitment to sustainability with a refill system and all recyclable or biodegradable packaging materials. Erica and I only advertise products that we use and feel are of benefit to us and by extension could be of value to our community as well. If you would like to order Seed Daily Symbiotics to incorporate into your own gut health routine, go to seed.com and use the code COURAGEOUS15 at checkout for 15% off or click on the link in our show notes. I think the cost that you talked about is really real. Um, And I couldn't afford to have had a baby before the age of um, 32, I think. I, I mean, I could have in the sense that people always have babies and not making the money that they want to make. But as a woman by myself, right? Because if I was contemplating being a single mother, incredibly difficult to live in New York as a single mother. Um, and I mean, as a 
the job I had, I just, it, it just, I couldn't have afforded the IVF. Maybe I could have afforded natural pregnancy with someone, but I couldn't have afforded the IVF and it would have been incredibly difficult to raise a child, which is why everyone leaves New York City when they have kids. So um, all, of, all of my choices were really contingent on whether I felt I could afford it. Um, in terms of advice about delaying or not delaying or having a test or not having a test, I think when I got that test, I trusted it. I trusted the bad news and it kind of it, it kind of pushed me into a path of action. Now, knowing what I know about FSH and AMH levels, I think I would have told myself then, you know what, you don't actually know 100% about what this test is telling you. It, it, it looks like a bad number, but you don't actually know, um, which is true. I mean, they know they know it's a good indicator, but they really don't know. It's not a predictor in that sense. Um, and if you went for the test, Erica, next week, and it gave you a really high FSH number, the problem is, is that if you trust that number, then you feel compelled, right, to take a, a path of action, a course of action. So I understand I understand the desire and not knowing for that reason. Um, I mean, one thing that I didn't realize or think about too much is that if you delay until 38, 39, 40 about having a child and then you have one, you don't have a lot of runway to have a second or a third child. Um, and it is, you know, you get very, very tired. So I think I hadn't weighed that as much as I should have. And it's really hard though to weigh it. Like you're 31, 32, your life's wonderful. It feels like such an abstraction to think about whether you want one or two children. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's enough of an issue just to think about whether you want to have a child, right? That yeah. seems like the bigger decision. But if you're thinking about what kind of kinship you want, what kind of family structure you want, that is something that I really didn't factor in too much. Um, when Annika, when my, when my child was um, five months old, I met someone and I went into a relationship with them who I'm still with. And uh, it was, um, what was interesting to me was I was now all of a sudden negotiating a deepening relationship, having already had a kid and, and ha having an infant and trying to co-parent with this other person, which is, is a very complicated dynamic. Mm. Um, but what became really clear was the idea of having a child with my ex versus the idea of having a child with the person I'm now in a relationship with felt like night and day different. Mm. I could see that the new relationship that I was in wouldn't survive if we had a kid, right? It's not because it's a, it's a bad relationship. It's not that at all. It's just that his energy, my energy, where we are in life, what we've made together is just not it's not quite conducive to having a kid whereas the choice of this ex-boyfriend it was conducive and i felt very confident that we could provide what i thought was a pretty good combination of of parenting um for for annika so 
I also hadn't really thought about that too much is that it really makes a difference who you're going to have the kid with if you're going to have the kid with someone. Mm. And that that should actually play more of a role than I realized at the time because I felt like my decision was just this like really contingent, pragmatic, like very swift decision. And it, I was worried about it as a decision for a while. But now I look back and think, no, no, no. I really did specifically think about what it was like to have a child with him and I acted accordingly. And that made a big difference in thinking about it. So in terms of women who are in their 30s and they're wondering what to do, I would think about like, do you want to have a child with your, just by yourself, with a partner? What does it feel like? What does it look like when you, when you put out those different options? I've, I've got a lot of friends who are waiting for all the stars to align, are waiting to meet the right person, are waiting to be in the right moment financially, are waiting for the right, right moment in their career, are waiting you know, for all of these things to line up. And it's incredibly difficult to get them all to line up. And there's an enormous pressure for them all to line up. Yeah. And so when they don't all line up, I think you can feel like you're doing something wrong, right? Or something's something's not not right about the, that particular moment in your life and i don't i don't know if this is good advice or not but i would say just push through the fear that they're not all aligning because it's incredibly difficult to get that's eye of the needle territory right to get it all lining up and it may be more like I, there are people you may not do what you want to do because you're waiting for it all to line up and then that's right. the bigger loss later on right yeah, you could, and you could wait forever, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I um, it's interesting because we we haven't done an in depth as in depth conversation as this um yet, but we did do a conversation on fertility with um two women named Jacqueline and Kibby, and I'll link their episode in the show notes. But they mentioned too about they they both went through like a egg freezing journey and you know something they mentioned too for just any of our listeners and what you just said is um sometimes when you freeze your eggs it's not for your first child it's for your second especially if you're you know in your earlier 30s or late 20s and you don't know you know exactly what you said right um could be for your second not your first but yeah i think this is really really good advice and and especially you know as you mentioned too, like there's never a perfect time, right? If you wait for a perfect time, you're going to wait forever. And <laughs> someone recently told me too, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an, kind of an optimist in general. I've been through a lot in my life, but you know, I think I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of an optimist, but this woman said something where, um, you know, I mentioned to her about timing and I was like, well, you know, I want to, these are things I'd like to be in my life before we go down that path. And she said something that really stuck with me too, where she said, um, you know, when you get pregnant, your life will start moving in a direction where it'll get ready to have that baby, right? Like once you get pregnant, you're going to have to get ready to have that baby, right? Instead of being like, oh, it has to be before she was like, your life will start. That was her experience, right? Like her life moved, started moving in a direction of, okay, now it has to get ready to have this baby and things start coming into place. And I thought that was really interesting that I had never heard before where she was like, no, I got pregnant. And then I had to kind of 
get all my shit together basically because <laughs> the baby was coming. Um, and I kind of was like, huh, I didn't think of it that way. And I really liked it. I was like, oh, like I liked that. But um, my second question that I did have, which is kind of, um, I don't think it's silly, but I've been seeing it on TikTok quite often where, um, you know, it's like something very popular that's being stitched at the moment of recording where these women, you know, some you know, women who are choosing not to have children. Um, you know, like I think the original video is a woman who is choosing not to have children and she's very confident in that decision. And somebody else stitched it and was like, you're going to have all these regrets. Like you should just go have a child. And now it's being stitched again with all these mothers talking about their experience in motherhood. That's like, I love my child more than anything, but like, it's, it's very difficult to be a mother and you you really need to want this child or you want you need to want this life if you want to do it right it's like the opposite of mom or non mom shaming yeah i think you guys follow what i'm saying right yes so i guess my question is you know what has your experience in motherhood been since you know you you fought so hard to have this child and i'm sure you love her more than anything in the world um you know, that goes without saying, but I guess what has your experience since been with motherhood and, um, yeah, kind of, you know, this big process to have this beautiful child and now you have it, what has that experience been like? So, um, it's funny that this person gave you the advice of like, your life will kind of course correct once you're pregnant, because, uh, when I was seven months pregnant one night, there was a fire in um, my apartment building in the um, apartment above ours, mine. And uh, and the fire, I was staying away that night. I wasn't actually there, but I woke up the next morning to all these text messages and the fire department had come in and put out the fire and sent water coursing through the entire building. And it had ruined every kitchen and bathroom in the line of apartments underneath it, right? So I, my apartment was completely unlivable. Like just, I, I could, I could, I could go in there for 10 minutes, pack a bag and leave. So the whole idea of having like this, this uh, bassinet when you come home from the hospital and everything's been carefully arranged and you have all the clothes and the light in your life moves into this kind of direction and this rhythm of being a mother was completely not there for me. Um, and I lived in sublets for like quite a while. So, so anyway, uh, so your life does arrange slowly. I think it arranges because um, you have to give up so much um, time and energy into making sure the baby stays alive, um, that you are constantly feeding, wiping. I mean, it just, it becomes hallucinogenic really, how much of you have to put to one side in those, in those first sort of at least first year really for me was just about making sure that she stayed alive and that I was doing it right. Right. Um, uh, I, I felt alienated by the discussions of motherhood online sometimes because this is just me um, because my life just wasn't together in the way that it was presented online. Um, you know, it, it's not that it was a mess, but I, I just, it wasn't picture perfect. Um, and I worried a little bit about how I was supposed to be, according to sort of society, this domestic goddess, right? Able of like gently disciplining her child and keeping the house clean and doing my work 
and like having a social life and all these things. And it just felt like a pretty impossible thing to achieve. Um, and I think when I let that go and stopped worry, worrying about how my life conformed to the narrative of motherhood, it became a hell of a lot more interesting and easier to do because I started thinking not so much about having like um, a well-appointed home, which is I think what some people are thinking about when they think about decorating the nursery and making sure that everything's like picture perfect. And I started thinking about what does it mean to create a domestic space for another human being, which I'd never really had to think about consciously before. And what does it look like to create a series of routines for another human being whose brain is forming and their neural networks are a result of the rituals that you create in your own domestic space. And when I started thinking about it in that way, that I was like laying down neural networks of behavior for Annika, it just became incredibly fun, right? Because it was all about repetition um, that felt very intentional rather than repetition in service of a lifestyle. Um, and so motherhood for me, I think, has been a lot about realizing that one of the wonderful things about being a mother is that you are creating a legacy of learning for your own child. And you're showing your child the world and suggesting ways in which they're going to learn from the world. And that's like a radically wonderful thing to do, right? To witness um, a person slowly learning about their world. And if someone had told me that like, when I was in my early thirties, I think I would have been a lot less ambivalent about having a kid because I would have seen it as this like wonderful experiment in living. Um, and I think the thing that was freaking me out in my early thirties was the expectations about what it meant to be a mother uh, rather than a parent, maybe. Maybe that's the distinction. Yeah. I love that. A legacy of learning. I think that is a really cool way to look at it. Um, because yeah, I, I mean, this kind of applies to all different aspects of life, but with, I think one of the darks, the dark sides, there are good sides to the internet, but one of the dark sides to the internet is like this curated, like idea of like what lifestyles are supposed to look like. And that mm -hmm. doesn't, that doesn't, apply to everyone and it and and we're all unique beings and i think that like humans baby humans can receive love or um develop legacies of learning in different ways so long as that they you know they're getting their basic needs met and that you as a parent have a unique perspective that's going to work um that it, it doesn't necessarily like just because somebody's marketing a lifestyle online. I mean, the, the reality is those are so curated for the, like essentially the consumer of the information that it's, I'm sure like most people's homes don't look like the way they, they stage them too, but it's hard to not when you're constantly getting information that appears a certain way that like, oh, motherhood is supposed to look like X, Y, and Z. But in fact, it can be a creative endeavor as the way you've explained it to us. Um, I think 
there is something empowering in that and something exciting or fun, as you said, too, that like there's this great experiment in how you can help um, help this unique little person develop in this world. And then also it's the way that they start to perceive the world too, which um, is, I think, fundamentally, Erica, going back to your you know self-proclaimed being an optimist, I think that's actually like a really in a world that is full of a lot of, um, you know, challenge, darkness, all of those things. I think it's a fundamentally hopeful way to look at the experience of parenting and, um, yeah. And it's, it's cool. It makes me actually excited about the potential, potential prospect. Um, well, I mean, when you yeah. think about the word experiment, it often has a negative connotation in science, right? That there's a sense of risk there that there's something to be lost. And I don't want to deny that, right? But at the same time, there's also something incredibly generative about risk and about the creativity in an experiment. Yeah. And um, that's why the title is Experiments in Motherhood and Technology, because I wanted to reclaim that word a little bit more um, and think about motherhood as um, an experiment. Yeah. rather than a reiteration of something, you know. Yeah. And as scary as it is, like, I think for me, something that interests me is this, like the human, like it's a human experience, like not to, di- but like you're saying, like this experiment of humanness and it's an experience that I think could be very interesting to have, which, you know, again, is it maybe the standard approach of like, oh, but I, I think that, you know, and of course, like I'd love to have my partner's child, but I think it's a really, yeah, I think the way you just described it is really beautiful and it is a very cool experiment that we could potentially have if that's what's meant to be for my life. So time will tell. And I appreciate you so much for sharing everything. Um, that you shared with us today. I took so much from this conversation as I'm sure our audience did as well. And as we do begin to wrap up, because I can't believe an hour has almost flown by, um, could talk to you for another hour, but as we begin to wrap up, we conclude with three wrap up questions. And the first is what is your self care routine? How do you take care of yourself? And what are some of your self care non-negotiables? So a shower, is non-negotiable. Um, a cup of coffee uh, in the morning, and I'm really lucky. We are on the ground floor of a department building, and so there's a garden at the back. And so I will, in fairly inclement weather, sit out there and look at the trees, and have a cup of coffee. That's my non-negotiable. I think. Nice. Um, the second one we ask everyone is, "What does being courageous mean to you?" Ooh. this is going to, this is going to sound, so this is not something that I did, but I think, I think it's true. It's taking the time to stop and think about what you really want. I think it's really easy to not pause um, because everything in the world is telling you that, that you need to be taking this particular course of action. Um, And I think it's courageous to stop and just say, no, wait a second. I just need to think about this a bit more and give yourself time. Thank you.
And our final question is, in addition to your own book, of course, um, do you have a particular book you'd like to recommend to our audience that has just been inspiring and meant something to you? It can be truly anything from a novel to anything, really. So this is this is not really on subject, but um, one of the books that feels like it's been the most inspiring to me this last year is a, a book called The Complete Ballet, I think. Let me just look it up. One second. Okay, yeah, so it's called The Complete Ballet, a fictional essay in five acts, and it's by a guy called John Haskell. Um, and it's a book that tells the story of five different ballets and it's wonderful reading it because even if you've just got a tangential relationship to the ballet, you've seen bits of the Nutcracker, you know, you don't really know that much about it. He kind of lovingly retells the stories of these ballets in a way that makes you more interested than you've ever been in ballet. And then he splices these descriptions of ballet with a detective fiction story. And the idea of crossing, like cross-pollinating or grafting these two very different genres of essays about ballet and like hard-boiled detective fiction, it sounds crazy, right? It sounds like some kind of taste sensation, you just just two things that you wouldn't put together, but he does it. And it's, it's, like, a, it's like a high wire act. You just keep on reading it thinking, wow, wow, because it's so inventive. And it's one of those things that you read and you think, I did not realize how much more possibility there was out there in terms of thinking about genre and writing. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you again for everything you shared with us today. If anyone wants to find you or buy your book, where can they do all of the things online? So um, you can buy it at um, Amazon, but I mean, I'd prefer for you to buy it from bookshop.org. Um, because proceeds at bookshop.org go to independent booksellers. Um, it's available uh, from December 6th onwards. Um, it's also, I did the Audible book um, recording of it, so you can listen to me um, mispronounce various words uh, online if you wanted to and just listen to the audiobook version. Um, I, um, I teach at NYU. I'm the executive director of the Expository Writing Program and the... Um, Assistant Vice Dean for General Education. So I can be found um, on the NYU website. If people wanted to contact me that way, you just have to type in NYU Jenny Quilter and you'll get it. Well, yeah. thank you, Jenny. Um, we really appreciate you being here today and hope everybody goes out and gets that book. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to the two of you and good luck with the decisions that you'll be making over the next couple of years. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Courageous Wellness. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week. Subscribe, rate, and write us a nice review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Courageous Wellness or get in touch via our website, www.courageouswellness.net, where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services, virtual group events, newsletter, and more. Until next week, I'm Allie and I'm Erica and we're Courageous Wellness.